set the tone. Please record your podcast. When you are finished, let the fans download on Spotify and listen to the latest episode. Let's set the tone for the 49th time, shall we? You can follow along on Twitter at setthetone underscore pod. Again, that is at setthetone underscore pod. We record on a Thursday, which the Sweet 16 is just hours from commencing. We're down to the final 16 from the field of, I'll call it 64. I do watch the play-in games, but the field of 68, little much for me. Those are play-in games. Those are play-ins to get into the tournament, and I am an old man yelling at a cloud when I think of it. Speaking of old men yelling at clouds, we do get a little bit of that with the World Baseball Classic that has finished up. Japan has won for a third time. I want to talk about that. I think I fall somewhere in between the two narratives that are spoken about, and we have some pro days ongoing in the NFL. I guess that could be the first little rant that we have. A lot of rave reviews coming out of C.J. Stroud's pro day with Ohio State. Anthony Richardson was lined up for him or for his. Auburn had their pro day. Bryce Young did not weigh in at his pro day, but I had mentioned C.J. Stroud. Rave reviews coming out of his pro day. Can I say something? Pro days are set up for success. Pro days are set up to make you look good and have as little adversity as possible. Roll left, turn around, roll right, throw downfield. Hey, you're in spandex and you have a wide open wide receiver whom you have pretty good chemistry with running said route. By the way, you're in a bubble. So there's no weather elements to factor in as well. There's no down and distance situation to factor in as well. You are supposed to look good at your pro day. And if you don't, there's a bigger issue than not even looking good at the combine. Because that's set up for relative success as well. Obviously, different chemistries can create different failures there. But, and correct me if I'm wrong here, have we ever heard of anyone having a bad pro day? In terms of the physical standpoint of where they have to perform at a football, high football level, I don't think we come out of it. And I'm talking about a top-tier draft pick. I don't think, in my memory at least, that we can think of a quarterback, and these are typically who they're for, but come out of a pro day and say, yeah, he did not have a good pro day, therefore we're going to fade this quarterback in the draft. That just doesn't happen. Because it's not supposed to happen. Whether these guys become good pros or not, they all have a relative high degree of talent as a football player in the grand scheme. Enough talent that they can waltz through a pro day. As they should. So I hate <laughs> I hate that we get on these talking points about, let's break down film from C.J. Stroud's pro day. Let's break down film from C.J. Stroud in the national semifinal. How about we do that? That'll give me a little bit more to talk about, to understand what I might be able to expect on Sunday. 
not from his pro day in Columbus. Anywho, we went through January, we got through February, and it is now the month of Izzo. March, I mean. The Sweet 16 I want to talk about, as I mentioned, hours away from the first game tipping off with the aforementioned Tom Izzo and the Michigan State Spartans as they go take on the Kansas State Wildcats. That's a 6.30 Eastern tip on TBS. 7.15, Must Bus comes to take on the Huskies of UConn. 7.15 on CBS, 9 o'clock. FAU, the 33-3 Owls, will take on the Tennessee Volunteers. That is a TBS game. So following Michigan State, Kansas State, and the late CBS game, Gonzaga, don't call them Gonzaga, and the UCLA Bruins, 945, or following UConn, Arkansas. Fun, four really fun games that we have in store. I was all in on Kansas State this past weekend against Kentucky, and got a big-time bailout from the Kansas State Wildcats. Needed everything that I could get from them, and in large part it was due to Marquise Noel, the senior out of Harlem, New York. Yeah, 5'8". I mean, flashes of... He was flashes in that game of the March player we all think about. Right, the guy who puts the team on his back. And what did he end up there uh, with there in total-wise? In 40 minutes, 27 points. He was 37.5% from three, which seems like it was more, to be quite honest. Nine assists as well, and got really fancy with the passing. Marquise Noel showed up in a big way to down the Kentucky Wildcats, cover the spread, and advance the Kansas State Wildcats to the Sweet 16. Listen, of what I have watched this year, and I'd mentioned this to you, Kansas State has looked like a top 10 team for a good portion of the year. But then there are games where I have seen them just lay an absolute egg and look like a shell of the, what was a top 10 team. Tom Izzo, as I had said, March is his middle name. The guy thrives in this element. So it's really tough to sit here and say, Kansas State, they should win in a landslide. I'll tell you what. Odds makers, take the 25-9 Wildcats and the 21-12 Spartans. Michigan State is a point-and-a-half favorite. And I have seen Kansas State play a lot better basketball than I have Michigan State this year. But that tells you so much about Tom Izzo and what he can do with four days of preparation for Kansas State. I would like to think, because of talent, Kansas State's going to win, but I just have this weird feeling in my gut that it is Michigan State. Mind you, they're a 10 seed. They beat USC in the first round. They take out Marquette, who I had in my final four, and that is just the frustrating nature of Tom Izzo being a really good coach. Shakes things up. And what's so funny about this tournament itself, too, is it's going exactly how I thought it would, but the hardest part about this year is saying that is I couldn't predict it was going to be this exact outcome. right? I could predict chaos, This March, but you just don't know where that chaos is coming. You're not shocked that it happened, 
but there's still so many surprises that the tournament gives you. And that has been the beauty of this year. We have a seven seed in the Sweet 16 today. We have an eight seed in the Sweet 16 today. We have a nine seed in the Sweet 16 today. We look towards tomorrow, we have two five seeds going up against number one seeds. It's beautiful in every which way. And there's talent across the board. And if we really look down to the 16 teams now, I mean, hell, FAU's a 33-3 basketball team. Could I see them in a national title game? Sure. I could. Do I expect it? Absolutely not. But it's to a point where you tell me any of the eight teams playing tonight are in the national title game. Okay. I'm on board with that. Could we look to tomorrow and say anyone seeds one through five in the national title game? Absolutely. It is chaos all over. The beauty of this tournament. If you're looking at predictions, I'm going to do a little puppy dog parlay. The Yukon Huskies take out Eric Musselman and the Arkansas Razorbacks and the Gonzaga Bulldogs led by Drew Timmy and Mark Few will move past the UCLA Bruins. I mention it for this reason, right? Remember the one thing I said last week where teams get in trouble is they play close basketball games and it bites them in the ass at some point in a one-and-done tournament. Well, Purdue's a great case in point of that. Not an over-the-top flashy team. And they bit the bullet. Now, there were upsets in other areas, but that is a good example of a team that's not flashy, can step on your throat. You play close games, and you wind up in that sort of spot. Oh, not to mention here as well, talking about some teams who we could see in the national title game. Yeah, there's a 15 seed by the name of the Princeton Tigers still in this dance as well. What does that tell you? Princeton will take on Creighton, a six seed, who I could see very possibly in the national title game as well because they're playing that style of basketball. Princeton, I don't. I'll hold the 15 seed against them. And typically on that week or half a week of preparation, it catches up with them at some point. But it's been a great story to this point. They beat Arizona, play a great defensive matchup to hold Arizona to 55 points. Earlier in the year, Arizona put up an 80 spot on Creighton, who Princeton's playing. So there's a mutual opponent in common here. Back to tonight's slate, I was talking about Arkansas, UConn. UConn has turned a corner. UConn has won two games on second half adjustments alone. They were down in the first game to Rick by Rick Patino, the new coach at St. John's. Now, Ed Cooley also leaving Providence to go to Georgetown. Had I had known, Ed Cooley sold his house and was planning this exit from Providence on March 3rd. Hell, I would not have bet on Providence in the tournament. I wouldn't have picked him in my bracket to win the first round matchup against Kentucky. I have to have better sources to know Ed Cooley selling his house in early March. That's a mistake on me. And that's the type of insight that wins you bets. But back to the other Big East team, UConn. Danny Hurley and crew 
have done a fantastic job with the second half adjustments. As I mentioned, down to Iona. And Iona threw everything that they had at UConn in that first game. UConn was, what, down five at the half? And that was really without Hawkins and Snogo going in a big way. So you felt comfortable that UConn can adjust. If this is the best that Iona has, it's enough to beat UConn, but I don't expect UConn to play like this for the next 20 minutes. Same thing against St. Mary's, a highly contested game. They turn the corner at the half and win running away 70-55. to Something tells me UConn does a lot of the same tonight. I wonder what kind of team they can come out as in the first half, but the second half adjustments show a very promising sign for me because now UConn looks like they're shooting the basketball a little bit better. Shot selection is there, right? They can still get to the basket and they can play some defense. And this is someone who loved Eric Musselman back when he was at Nevada. I I fell in love with that 2017 Nevada team when it was uh, Cody and Caleb Martin and it was the five grad transfer starters that Eric Musselman brought in. This is before the nil stuff gone through had gone through that Eric Musselman was relying on the transfers to come in and change the shape of his team. Did a really good job of it and has gotten himself a pretty solid SEC coaching position. Gets Arkansas, which in eight seed in the tournament, I thought they underperformed a little bit through the regular season. And I think their season comes to an end with a big UConn win. On the other side of the puppy dog parlay I had mentioned, the Gonzaga Bulldogs taking on the UCLA Bruins. My big thing with Gonzaga is a lot like UConn can get to the basket, put some good shot selections up. I think they're a well-coached team. UCLA also tends to play those close games. It bites them in the ass at some point. I'm going to say it happens to Gonzaga, who's flying under the radar a little bit. UCLA, talented, don't get me wrong. I'm expecting the Gonzaga, and it's unfortunate, it's Thursday night at 9.45, the Gonzaga-UCLA game to be an absolute classic. Give me like a 65-63 Gonzaga win is where I'm looking. That's what I'm targeting. 65-63, Gonzaga moves on, and we get them taking on UConn later on this weekend. On the Friday night slate, just to cover that quickly, Houston-Miami, I was out on Miami early. I'm sorry I gave you the bad pick of Kent State to the Sweet 16. I thought they would be in this spot against Houston. I was wrong. Now Miami turns a corner, and I think they'll be able to give Houston everything they can handle. Alabama, we know how much of a talented team they are. There's a lot of turmoil. They've gone through with the Brandon Miller off-court incident. Nate Oates, I don't think, has been the best spokesperson for this scenario, but they're playing really, really good basketball. As is San Diego State, a 63-57 win against a three-loss Charleston team. Then they get matched up with Furman. Virginia was another example that I wanted to talk about. Teams that do not blow you out. Good teams that don't blow you out also create chances to lose for themselves, and Virginia just doesn't have that offense right now. Now, the way Creighton is moving the basketball around on the offensive side. right? Ryan Kalkbrenner with 30 in the first game. Andrew Nemhard with 30 in their second game. The Creighton Blue Jays look like a bit of a team here. 
And it was funny. I was going back to a text exchange I had with a friend of mine early in the year. I had said Creighton, Texas is a matchup I want in March. Now, the only way we get to Creighton, Texas is an NCAA finals matchup. Not out of the question. I would absolutely love to see it. Tennessee, FAU. I said, gun to my head, I'm going FAU, three-loss team. Have some fun with it. Actually, that's a situation where you probably don't want to have fun with it. I would more likely lean Tennessee. Uh, Didn't have a real good feel of the Rick Barnes Tennessee team as they were hot and cold throughout the year. I'll go with FAU and a good story. And I had mentioned... Tom Izzo is the gut feel tonight, although I think Kansas State is more talented. So when we make it through the weekend, I think this will be my play. of a final four that we'll have set up. Let's go with Creighton because we like a little bit of chaos. Let's go with Michigan State because why the hell not? Creighton, Michigan State, and I'm changing it to Gonzaga. I'm sorry, UConn, as I already had Gonzaga in the Final Four. And UConn, I'm holding those futures tickets. They're looking better and better by the day. I had said on this show, get in on UConn. I hope you listened because you could have gotten them anywhere, like I did from 12 to 1 to 30 to 1. I probably could have gotten them at a better price, too, when they were in that 1 and 7, 8 game stretch. So we'll go with Texas, UConn, Michigan State. Creighton is your final four to get us through the weekend. Try that on for size. The other thing I wanted to discuss, and we'll get you on the merrily way here, is the World Baseball Classic wraps up. Japan winning their third title in World Baseball Classic play, defeating the United States on Tuesday night. That culminated with a Mike Trout strikeout at the hands of Shohei Otani with the U.S. down one, Trout being the tying run at the plate. It's like the baseball gods gave us a little something. It was a really, really fun moment. And in the last 10 days, the World Baseball Classic of that March 11th to March 21st stretch, I thought that it generated a lot of buzz. And there seems to be some tension between the baseball fans who were into it. The casual audience seems to have a good grip on it. The casual baseball fan, or the casual sports fan, who will watch a baseball game, seem to think it was fun. The Trout-Otani thing, they understood it. I don't think anyone thinks this World Baseball Classic is bigger than the World Series. But the dissension between a certain baseball ilk and another, you have someone saying the World Baseball Classic means absolutely nothing. And there's really no point of even playing it. Why should we care? Why are the players excited? Then you have another faction of fans thinking that it is the most meaningful play baseball has ever offered. That Game 7 of the World Series wouldn't even hold a candle to it. And I think, very rationally, we can fall right in the middle on this. I like the World Baseball Classic. I thought it was fun. I took it for what it was. Now, 
there's not a lot of cachet built up for the World Baseball Classic. Then again, its inception was only 17 years ago. And you might ask, well, where was Aaron Judge? And I hit on that, and this would have been a great opportunity for Judge to be around because it turned out to be a great event. Hindsight being 2020, I would love to I would love to see the media ask Aaron Judge a question. Knowing what you know now, would you have liked to be a part of the World Baseball Classic this year? I would think he would contemplate changing his answer. The Yankee fan may not like it, but the Yankee fan should learn to deal with it. And one thing that this had helped lead to, and I had said you were on Alvarez was missing it, I completely forgot about his injury. As I mentioned, Bryce Harper's is the reason he was not in it. Um, but there were lacking big pitchers. I said the U.S. is lacking pitching, and they're probably going to hurt from it. Case in point, Merrill Kelly's starting a World Baseball Classic final game against Japan. Does anyone in the casual world know who Merrill Kelly is? Not a chance. And that's where the U.S. missed a big star. But what this might have done, it might have, quote-unquote, set the tone for the World Baseball Classics moving forward, where things were a little bit more loose on the U.S. side. Players are now going to look at it as a big deal. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither was the luster of the World Baseball Classic, but I think this is a way for it to trend in the right direction. So for those to say it's not a big deal and no one should care, if the players didn't care about the World Baseball Classic, why should the fans? So the fact the players put their best foot forward, the players that were there put their best foot forward, gave a damn, is I think a lot of the reason the American audience began to give a damn. Give a damn. If I can use a proper term of English. So when we get the next World Baseball Classic cycle moving around, I'm really curious to see who shows up. More so on the pitching side of it. Because that's where the U.S. lacked the stars. They had stars in the field. Goldschmidt, Arenado. They missed Aaron Judge. That's for sure. Now, I do think it's a little over the top when Salvador Perez says this is the best environment I've ever played in and he was in the World Series. Again, I think you have to read between the lines a little bit too. And factor, when fans talk about Otani Trout was an epic at bat. And this is where... I think two sides are just so heated and stubborn. You have the I don't care crowd, or I shouldn't care about the World Baseball Classic crowd saying, it's not an epic at-bat. It's not up there with the greatest at-bats in baseball history. And then you have the crowd who wanted to be the pom-pom cheerleader saying, it is so great. It's one of the best things we've witnessed recently. I think we're conflating epic with all-time great and epic with cool. And that might be a generational thing. But I hate the fact that there's this big miss and now the baseball crowd is arguing. But, at the same time, it's generated a conversation. It has sparked more interest into the World Baseball Classic. I think we're going to get a lot of good buzz moving forward. 
but if we could take off the blinders a little bit that some baseball fans might have and look how it was received through the rest of the country, through the rest of the world, the World Baseball Classic is a big deal. Is it going to become the World Cup in soccer? No, not quite. But then again, we'll factor what? The World Cup of soccer has been around since 1906, 1904. Treat this like a locomotive and let's get it going. And I think baseball made a huge step forward. Not just the World Baseball Classic, but the MLB as well. Can this trend continue into the season? I like it a lot. And I'll put it in proper perspective. The World Baseball Classic. To have it every three or four years, whatever cycle the MLB wants to do as they back it, by all means, do it and I will watch it especially if you get this type of buy-in from the players. Enjoy the Sweet 16. Enjoy the Elite 8. We will come back next week and talk MLB baseball as we have a season to preview. We will talk about a Final Four and a national title game on the horizon, your Puppy Dog Parlay, Gonzaga Moneyline, UConn Moneyline, and put a couple shekels on UConn minus 3.5.